Coming up, another wild and crazy college football Saturday has the Crimson Tide back on top as they lead the brigade to a Final Four set for New Year's Eve. A lot to get into as I'll recap what took place over the weekend. NFL Week 13 comes to a close with a huge game in Buffalo tonight, but the AFC playoff picture has become a bit muddled as we get close to the home stretch of the season. The showdown between the players and owners, aka Armageddon, has begun, but what's next? Especially for some of the big free agents that are still out there, I'll have the latest in Major League Baseball and if there's going to be any end in sight. The Sun streak stops at 18, another number one in college basketball goes down, some news on Tiger Woods, my hero in Zero of the Week, you know I've got you all covered with plenty of analysis and opinions on deck. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, So then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, alright? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? Is happening, my good people. Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Also, hoping that your December and final month of the year is off to a great start and that you're in a good headspace as we get closer to 2022. Glad that you stopped by to get your fill on all that's happening in the world of sports. And I promise you that you've come to the right place as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me for now 227 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, December the 6th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what's expected on this podcast, is as follows. 
Just a smattering of excitement in another not-so-exciting NFL Week 13. I'll get into the winners and losers, plus a huge matchup in Buffalo tonight between the Patriots and Bills. And what about the AFC playoff picture? 12 of the 16 teams are involved, including the Steelers' nail-biter in Pittsburgh versus their hated rivals, the Ravens, as it came right down to the wire. I'll get into everything that's happening in the National Football League later. As well as the Phoenix Suns, who went into Friday night at Golden State with an 18-game winning streak after beating the Warriors earlier the week at home. But it came to a close as the Warriors were able to snap that streak. I'll get into everything that's happening in the association, including a 73-point margin of victory? What? How is this possible? I'll touch on that later on, as well as what is happening with Major League Baseball. The Armageddon has begun. No agreement was made after the December 1st expiration date. So now what happens? When will this come to fruition? If you've been listening to me for weeks, you already know what I have to say about this. But what does this mean for the players who haven't signed, such as Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Freddie Freeman, Chris Bryant, Clayton Kershaw, and the like? Lots of questions, but not enough answers. I'll assess all that later on. I'll get into a little NHL, as well as some news on Tiger Woods, as he had a press conference there on Tuesday to talk about his recovery and when he may be back on a golf course in the, can't say not so distant future, but somewhere down the line, we may see him on a golf course I'll get into all that, including my hero and zero of the week. Just when we all thought we were ready to count out the Alabama Crimson Tide. They're like Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and Jason Voorhees all wrapped up in one. As you cannot kill these fictional movie characters. But sadly for yours truly, and I'm sure many throughout the country, knowing that Nick Saban and company like the movie Poltergeist and Heather O'Rourke, the little girl, when she turned to the parents and said, they're back. Oh, I tell you. To me, Alabama's like Duke. Going back to the early 2000s, late 90s, etc. The Duke teams that we just could not stand. And nothing personal against Coach K. It's just the colors, the Blue Devils, the Cameron Indoor, all that. But with Alabama, what could you say? Just a stupendous performance by their quarterback, Bryce Young, who's going to be the Heisman Trophy winner. And I'll get to both sides, not only just with Alabama and also with Georgia and just the mind state or mindset of both teams as we're three and a half weeks away from the college football playoff. But I have to start real quick with Oklahoma State. And the only reason why I bring that up is because this was the team that if they would have beaten Baylor... In the conference championship, the Big 12, down in Jerry's World, AT&T Stadium in Dallas. And for them to fall up short, with them being the first game of the day, because when you mapped out your college football Saturday, you had Baylor and Oklahoma State at 12. You had both Houston and Cincinnati, as well as Alabama and Georgia at 4 p.m. And then the nightcap at 8 o'clock was the... Big Ten Championship between Michigan and Iowa, which wasn't even a match when it was all said and done. But with Oklahoma State, what it boils down to is that final sequence at the end of the game. Now, the Cowboys got off to a very sluggish start, only kicked two field goals in the first half, and then they started to climb their way back to the point where on a third and three, deep in Baylor territory, they were able to get that pass interference at the corner of the end zone, which set them up at the one-yard line, and then... First and goal, 
with about a minute 24 to go. They run a draw, get stuffed, first down. Second down, they run another draw where it looked like the running back broke the plane of the goal line, did not, was stuffed there. Third down, they try to get a pass into the end zone, which was incomplete. And then on fourth down, you had the running back, Desmond Jackson, who looked like he was going to be able to get to the pylon. He was about to make that burst, but the defender made a great play and angling towards Jackson to kind of push him to the outside as far as he possibly could go to where Jackson had to lunge and dive for the pylon, but came up short. That's how the game ends in Oklahoma State for everything that they did here in the final couple of weeks to get themselves in this position to possibly be that one team that could sneak in through the back door to make it into the college football Final Four. After that loss, goodbye. You weren't going to see them again as far as making it to the Final Four. So that set up your beginning for a college football Saturday. And then now let's just get to Alabama and Georgia to where the Bulldogs got off to a very good start. 10-0 early there in the second quarter. Alabama couldn't muster anything on offense. And then it almost seemed like the switch was flicked to where Bryce Young finds Jamison Williams for the long touchdown, what was it, 66 yards to put them on the board. And then it was just a matter of time before the Crimson Tide engine started to rev up and pretty much taking control of the game to where John Mechie then gets on the board where later on he was lost where it looks like it's going to be an ACL. So you're not going to see him at the Final Four or if they advance past that to a championship game. But then the Alabama offense, they were able to click at that point to the tune to where Stetson Bennett, they were able to get the game-tying score with the Lad McConkey 32-yard touchdown pass. This is after Alabama then answered the 10-0 start by Georgia with 17 unanswered points on their own. So just when you thought that Georgia was getting back in the game and they tied it with about two minutes to go, all it took was for Alabama more so on the legs of Bryce Young than it was on the arm, but a combination of both, but where he was able to run it into the end zone with 26 seconds to go, leading at halftime 24-17, and then all it took from that point, right out of the break, just a minute and 50 seconds into the third quarter, to where Jamison Williams, there's that man again, a 55-yard touchdown, they were able to slice up that Georgia defense where a lot of people thought they were going to be stout and slow down the Alabama offense, in particular more so Bryce Young than pretty much the rest of their skill position players because the running back is good, Brian Robinson, and obviously the wide receivers, although Jamison Williams had a monster game and John Mechie contributed before he left, but this isn't Devontae Smith, this isn't Najee Harris, this isn't Jalen Waddle. go on down the list. So for Alabama to then come out of the locker room to get that score at 31-17 and then to ice it there in the fourth quarter, to where Jordan Battle had the 42-yard pick six, 38-17. You could pretty much turn your sets off even at 31-17 because the Georgia offense was stagnant after that. And even though the stat line for Stetson Bennett, even with the two picks, but I understand he did have over 300 yards passing, 340 to be exact, was 29 for 48, three touchdowns, but the damage was already done. Alabama now reared its ugly head to the point where they're going to be the favorite to win the national title. And what else is new? So twofold here, and I'm going to get to my storylines or really just the, at the tail end, to get into the Final Four because it's too early to get into predictions right now. Not to say that a lot could happen between now and then with injuries and things of that nature, but 
I'll get into each team's storyline heading into the college football Final Four and then the Monday before the playoff, which would be the 27th, so three weeks from today, that podcast, I'll preview the Final Four at that time. But storylines aside, Alabama, obviously they use this as bulletin board material, being the underdog, being the team that nobody believed in them, considering that even with the year that they've had losing to Texas A&M and really not playing up to Alabama's reputation here over the final few weeks of the season, which was highlighted by the game just a week before against Auburn, where it had to come down to a last-second touchdown from that long 90-some-odd-yard drive by Bryce Young and then getting that equalizing score with about 20-something seconds, whatever it was, 24 seconds to go, and then they won on all the two-point conversions and the four overtimes against the Auburn team. And now here they are with their coach in the postgame saying that you could feed us the rat poison, but you gave us not the fatal one, but the yummy one, and nobody wants to hear from Nick Saban. I mean, I'm tired of him. Of course, you know, he was grinning from ear to ear like the Joker. And sadly, this team is going to be raring to go come New Year's Eve. They have gas in the tank. They use that game as, I'm sure Nick Saban threw everything and the kitchen sink at his team to say, we don't deserve to be here. Georgia's been steamrolling everybody. Nobody's going to pick us to win this game. We should might as well not even show up. You know what Nick Saban's going to do here. And look what the final result. Now, if Alabama squeaked by in a nail-biter, or let's just say that the game was a lot more competitive to the point where Georgia hung in there but weren't able to seal the deal, then maybe you could say, all right, Alabama, they still have some things to work on. They still haven't worked out all the kinks. They could still be picked off. You can't say that right now with this team. Alabama is going in guns a-blazing. And on the flip side with Georgia, and I get it, the last month they didn't face anybody. Yeah, they pounded on Florida early and beaten you know, the Kentuckys of the world, but then this stretch here with the Georgia Techs and the Georgia Southerns winning 56 nothing, it was almost as if they slept walk, not necessarily into this game because they had a 10 nothing lead early on in the second quarter. But then after that, despite getting that touchdown with two minutes to go, like I said to Lad McConkey, they fell asleep behind the wheel. And if you're the coach, Kirby Smart, you have to be asking yourself, what went wrong? Now, was it more Alabama than it was Georgia? Got to give the Crimson Tide credit. From that point on, they just took over the game. Led by that touchdown right there before the half, and then obviously the touchdown right after the half. So now when you look at Georgia, you have to wonder whether or not that this team is going to have anything left in the tank. And granted, it's three and a half weeks, but you have to wonder about the psyche and even the heart of this team. Because how could they be so dominant pretty much from game number one? And granted that Clemson wasn't anywhere near what they had been the last few years, but with that 10-3 performance in the opening week where they got seven sacks against Clemson and it looked like Georgia, they were going to be very stout defensively and rightfully so. They've given up a paltry number of points throughout the course of the season. And then Alabama goes in there. All right, slow start for them. They weren't able to get things churning. And then next thing you know, at 10 nothing, they get the touchdown pass to Williams. And it was like, oh, they woke up the sleeping giant. And Georgia has a lot of questions that need to be answered between now and New Year's Eve. Because I'll put my hand up right now. I do not want to see a rematch 
between Georgia and Alabama. Because if that's going to be the case, we're going to have to sit for 10 days, thankfully, unlike last year where it felt like two months, but with the games being played on New Year's Eve, which is a Friday, and then the national title game being the following Monday, if this is going to be Georgia-Alabama again, oh, we're going to have to sit through all the terrible losses that they've had against Alabama, including this one, not including the national title game a couple of years ago, and obviously the conference championship games of years past. I'd rather see either Alabama lose in the semifinal and then Georgia win, or have Alabama win and then Georgia lose, because a rematch of this is going to be pretty much the same script, the same movie that I've seen time after time over the years. Why would this change if they were to play January 10th for all the marbles? So that's what we have there with Georgia. A lot that's going to be chewed on, for more so for Georgia than for Alabama, because people are going to think, oh, Alabama's back. They got the cape. They're no kryptonite, whatever that was down the stretch of the season. That's all thrown in the garbage. And now Georgia, they have all the baggage that they got to sit on for three and a half weeks and wonder not only what went wrong, but will they be able to rally the troops to not only win a semifinal game, but get to a national title game where it was pretty much mapped out for them since the middle of the season. Then you had Cincinnati take care of Houston. That was a close game right at the half. It was 14-13. But then the Bearcats came out with a touchdown drive to start. Then they got an interception there deep in the Cougar territory to where they turned that around and put that in the end zone. A 21-yard touchdown pass from Desmond Ritter to Alec Pierce. Made it 28-13. They scored 21 points in the quarter and you could pretty much turn your sets off at that point as the Cincinnati Bearcats where a lot of people thought that they were going to be here. Even with Houston being a little bit feisty, they were ranked coming into this game, but they were no match for the Bearcats as they go undefeated and now set themselves up to play in a national title scenario or really in the college football playoff. And then lastly, at 8 o'clock, you had Michigan who had to answer all their questions the week before against Ohio State, and they did so in with flying colors. Now you had a scenario where they played Iowa, and a lot of people thought Wisconsin being upset by Minnesota, people thought that Wisconsin could have gave Michigan a better fight, a better matchup, with Iowa winning the Big Ten West, and they might as well stood at home or didn't even get on the bus to make it to the stadium because... Michigan, riding high from that Ohio State win, showed no after effects of a letdown. They steamrolled the Hawkeyes 42-3. What more can you say for Jim Harbaugh as they were able to close out the Big Ten Championship and a year where a lot of people thought that they wouldn't even be anywhere close to this position to set themselves up not only winning a conference championship but now getting themselves into the Final Four. And the stage is set. New Year's Eve, 3.30, Cincinnati versus Alabama. That's four versus one. And then the nightcap at 7.30, right before you're able to watch the ball drop and celebrate a new year. Number three, Georgia, will play against number two, Michigan. Both of those games, the first one being at the Cotton Bowl, and then the nightcap down in Miami at the Orange Bowl. And then, of course, the championship, like I mentioned, January the 10th, which will be at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. And I'm sorry, people. I know there are a zillion other bowl games. 
I get that now you're going to have Notre Dame play Okie State in the Fiesta and all the other bowls, but at the end of the day, nobody cares. I'm sorry, I've said that for years on end, so this isn't an affront to any of the college football teams that you root for or one of those schools or your alma mater and they're going to play in one of these bowls, but I'm sorry. Am I going to really sit here and let's just say for argument's sake, on December 21st, the famous Idaho Potato Bowl between Kent State and Wyoming, uh, is, who's going to watch that? Besides the people that live in those regions or who go to that school, because if you're going to expect me to sit down, not only watch that, but then dissect it a week later, you, you got to be off your rocker. And again, that's no offense to those administrations, the coaches, players, students, etc. Up and down the board, no offense. But even... Let's say a matchup on the 23rd between UCF, Central Florida versus Florida, which some people may rally around, but only in that state. But that is the Union Home Mortgage Gasparilla Bowl. Uh, Really? You guys want me to break that down? Now, who knows? If there's a wild and wacky ending or the game is a shootout or something of note, then I'll discuss it. But if this is going to be just your regular Florida thrashing 38-17, and I'm going to come on the airwaves to get into that game, then I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. So again, you've been warned. No offense to those who go to those schools for everything I just mentioned, but to me, it boils down to those two games on New Year's Eve. Those are the only games that anybody really cares about when it comes to college football. And as I mentioned three weeks from today, I'll preview that. But before I get to that, let me just close out the college football by just going through a little bit of some storylines as we set the stage for what may take place. And again, I won't make a prediction until then, but let me break down each team as we now could exhale, let the dust settle so all four of these teams could bask in the glory of making it to the college football final four. And of course, I'll go from one through four. So obviously I'm going to start off with uh, Alabama. The boogeyman is still alive. So Alabama is going to go into this Final Four with their chests puffed out. They're relishing the fact that they just stomped all over Georgia's number one ranking. And knowing that if they face them again in a title game, that all the moxie, all the mojo is going to be on Alabama's side. And with Cincinnati coming in, being that Cinderella, quote-unquote, you would think that they're going to hear a lot between now and then how this undefeated team, who probably doesn't even belong on the same field as Alabama, Nick Saban's going to twist and turn that to the point where they're the undefeated team. They are actually have played better than us all year. So he's pretty much going to take that same tact that he brought into the game against Georgia And probably use that in the semifinal to the point where they don't even need to go that route. We don't need to see Alabama or Nick Saban try to use some sort of tactic or Jedi mind trick on his Alabama team. Because even with the championship medal from last year, without Mac Jones, without Jalen Waddell, without Devontae Smith and a ton of other NFL players that are in the league right now, we know what that culture is like. They could have me at running back 
or at linebacker, safety, etc. And he doesn't need to get in my ear to know that this team that we're going to play against is going to be not necessarily favored. I'm sure Alabama, they're going to be favored by double digits, you would think. But my point is, is that with all of the trending that's taking place right now for Alabama to win this thing, and you, why would you even consider them not being a favor right now after what we saw there on Saturday? But just the fact that they are cooking with gas, the fact that they're steamrolling to this Final Four, that a lot of people thought they were going to be left for dead, that Georgia was going to pretty much flatten their chances of making it to the college football playoff, and now they're here. So as crazy as this may sound, it's almost as if Alabama's playing with house money. And I know that's even hard to fathom when it comes to Alabama. They're the defending national champions. But so many people, including yours truly, and I said it last week, I thought Georgia would win the game. Would I have been surprised that if Alabama won? No. And that's a lot of it has to do with Georgia's baggage against Alabama over the years. But now here's Alabama. It's almost as if they dusted themselves off. Again, the boogeyman. Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees. Here we are. You haven't killed us yet. And chances are you may not be able to kill them if you're Cincinnati or if you're Georgia or Michigan. So to me, that's the one storyline I'm going to go in with Alabama, knowing that all is right in the world and we're back in our lofty perch as being number one where we should have been all along, but eh. We took a little bit of a detour here. Yeah, we didn't play well there. Uh, yeah, we kind of stubbed our toe, but we were able to pull ourselves out of the fire there. And here we are. As for number two, Michigan, the magic carpet ride continues. Which has to make you think, is this not only going to be the year for Jim Harbaugh, but also for the administration overall? Because if you recall, the last time they won a national title game, they had to share it with Nebraska In the 1997 year, that's the Charles Woodson, Brian Greasy team. And that was the year where Michigan beat Washington State. And of course, Nebraska won. And we all know back in the day, that was all fudged. And the AP poll, Michigan won. But the coaches poll was Nebraska. We know how that ended up. So here's Michigan at this point, knowing that they had so much to overcome. And a lot of people thought that even with the extension that was given by the school to Jim Harbaugh and they entrusted not only his coaching, his philosophy, etc. And obviously being an alum and former quarterback of the Wolverines that they pushed all their chips in the middle of the table. And guess what? They came out with a boatload of money, not only beating Ohio State as we've seen, but also just thrashing Iowa. And not that that was a shock. But you know that if I was going to be in this game, let's say even at halftime, a lot of people would have thought, oh, geez, maybe the snakes are still in Harbaugh's head and the team. But uh uh-uh, he erased that. So now he's not playing with house money because he still has a couple more mountains to climb. But you wonder, just in the last few weeks alone, and then even beating Penn State, and even though Penn State was battered and bruised at that time, but they had to come from behind and win that game at Happy Valley. And here they are, team number two. And do they have a good shot to not only beat Georgia, but also get to a national title, maybe win? I'd say, why not? Does that mean they're going to? Absolutely not. I'm not going to say that right now. They have to get past Georgia first. But they have as good as a shot as any team to be the last team standing to win a national title. 
Now let's go to Georgia. To me, Kirby Smart has to get in his players. If he, has, if he hasn't done so already, he has to get in their heads right now to say, hey guys, we know they're Alabama. We know what they're all about, but we're still in this thing. We do have to play a hot Michigan team, but that doesn't mean that the season is up in smoke. Destiny is still controlled by our Bulldog team. He's going to have to hammer that in because what they've experienced on Saturday, I'm sure there were a lot of heads being hung and a lot of doubt, disbelief, knowing that they had this dominant regular season and then it didn't go all all up in smoke because they're still one of the last four teams standing, but you have to wonder whether or not this team, their psyche between their ears and what's in their chest, if they're going to have enough to not only beat Michigan, but to get back to a title game and then, dare I say, play Alabama. So that's going to be the key theme for them between now and December 31st. I don't want to hear anything other than that because that is all the focus right now on what Kirby Smart's going to do to get his message to that team to say, hey, we are not out of this thing. Yes, we lost Alabama. Yes, we know who they are. Yes, we may even see them one more time. But we have one game ahead of us against one pretty damn good team All the focus should be on that. We could beat this team. We are Georgia. Let's go. And then finally with Cincinnati, to me, it's the Cinderella. And the only reason why I say that because they're a team that was undefeated, give them props. Their only big win was against Notre Dame, as we saw there about six weeks ago. And here's a team that I'm glad to see in there. It did help that Oklahoma State did lose because I'm sure a lot of people in that region would have thought that Oklahoma State deserved to be there, even with the one loss and with no losses to Cincinnati, that the competition that they beat, whether it was Oklahoma along the way, whether it was Baylor, obviously a top 10 ranked team, and what did Cincinnati have to do all year? But we don't have to worry about that. The Bearcats are front and center in this thing. And the one thing that I will say about this Bearcat team, despite them being perfect, and deserving to be here. It's reminiscent to a team going back 13 years ago, and although it wasn't for a national championship, but it was for a big bowl game, it was the Sugar Bowl in 2008, where the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors played against the Georgia Bulldogs in that game. Hawaii, the quarterback was Colt Brennan. May he rest in peace, as he believed in the past year, had passed away. And then June Jones, remember him, the former Atlanta Falcons quarterback? was the coach of the Rainbow Warriors, and they went undefeated through the whole year. And we know that schedule out there, very soft. But what happened when they had to take a step up in class to play a team like Georgia, national stage for the whole world to see? They bombed. Lost 41-10. I hate to say it, but this is what I see for Cincinnati, knowing that they're going to go up against Alabama. This is a... Typical David versus Goliath matchup. And that's not to say they're going to lose. I'm not trying to tip my hand to say what's going to happen here. But I could see Cincinnati looking at this game and the lights being way too bright for them. And especially against that team, I'm sure that's the last team they wanted to face. But that's the challenge. And this is why, deservingly so, we understand that Cincinnati should be here. And they earned the right to be here. But how they're going to perform in this game, 
That's going to be the burning question between now and then. Because I don't want to hear anything else. I don't want to hear how sky high confident they're going to be. The quarterback, the coach, the whole team. Yeah, we're undefeated. Uh Uh-uh. They should just lay low. Not say much. Talk about how great Alabama is. That we probably don't even deserve to be on the same field. And when it's all said and done, that may be the case. But they should just keep that low profile. Because if they even think about, not to say they're going to get engaged in any type of trash talk, but if they're going to say that, hey, we deserve to be here, yes, we're going to go up against the big, bad, mighty Crimson Tide, but, you know, we're going to show them, uh, I would say not too fast. So those are the four storylines there, to me, that I will look at from an early analysis leading up to the college football Final Four. And the college football season, what can you say? It has been fascinating It's been intriguing, and now the stage is set. So we'll have to wait another three and a half weeks before we could chew on these semifinal college football Final Four playoff games. All right, before I move on to the NFL, quickly let me go through some of these coaching changes because going back to last week, we know about Lincoln Riley going to USC, which was, like we've seen time after time, we could pound these coaches left to right. Same for Brian Kelly, who... Goes to LSU, and a lot of people thought that was a bit premature because we didn't know how this was going to shake down this past weekend with the college football playoff because with Oklahoma State losing, and could you imagine if Alabama lost? Notre Dame would have leapfrogged both teams into the Final Four, and then they would have had the incumbent, the defensive coordinator who took over as Brian Kelly left for LSU. He would have been the guy to lead the team in the semifinal game, but as it is right now, it's moot, so we don't have to talk about it, but I get it. If you're going to go to greener pastures, and in this case, down to the bayou for LSU, I wonder if he thought about his chances of maybe making it to the college football Final Four in the back of his mind, or did he just say, well, I got to get on a plane, head down there, not only for the press conference, but also to sign the contract and to start recruiting. Because as we all know, I believe December 15th is the date where you can start signing players. Uh, That's just how bad college football is. It's just brutal on so many levels to where you leave your team flat, you leave the kids flat. Reports came out that Brian Kelly spent two minutes with the kids before he said sayonara. See, I'm out the door. Whether that's true or not, you would think it is based on the report from The Athletic, but... That's just the sordid and downright dirty details of the NCAA where these coaches are not going to stay loyal, especially if the big payday and the bigger school lies ahead. And then people will say, what do you mean the bigger school? He's at Notre Dame. Notre Dame's one of the top institutions in this country. Absolutely. And even though they have competed in the past for college football playoffs and national title games, but they're not going to recruit that five-star blue chip the way they would in Alabama, LSU, even Oklahoma, to where you're Notre Dame. Obviously, there are academic standards that need to be at the forefront here. And for a guy like Brian Kelly, who's made it and has done very well there at South Bend, but to get themselves to the next level, to win a national title, you got to have the talent. You got to have the studs. And if you're not going to have that, you're going to be left behind. So he figured, up. Oh, not only I'm going to take a 10-year, $95 million contract down at Baton Rouge, but I'm also going to have a better shot to recruit these players away from Alabama, away from Georgia, away from Florida in that 
highly ultra uber competitive Southeastern Conference. So we could talk about these coaches to the cows come home, but this isn't anything new. We've seen this time after time after time. And yes, it doesn't look good. It's a terrible optic, but what are you going to say? What are you going to do? And obviously with these players transferring, going whether through the portal or let's say they signed their letter of intent with Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma and then they said, well, he's leaving. Well, I'm out too. I'm going somewhere else. That's also the nature of the beast. So with a guy like Spencer Rattler, who is a preseason Heisman favorite and wasn't even able to make it out of the game against Texas there in early October to where he pretty much rode the pine until almost the very end, he says, I'm out of here too. Now, who knows where he's going to head? I doubt if he's going to head out to USC. Maybe he does to follow Lincoln Riley out to the sunshine of Southern California. Remains to be seen. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, but who knows? So that's it for the college football. Oh, wait, let me throw in. I'm sorry. Oklahoma did hire Brent Venables. He's a former defense coordinator of the Clemson Tigers. So to round out that whole coaching carousel where Riley leaves Oklahoma to go to USC... Brian Kelly goes from Notre Dame to LSU and then now Oklahoma gets their coach in Brent Venables. So now that I could transition to the NFL, I had to start off with the college football because now we could pretty much put that to rest. I get it. Army-Navy next week, which is pretty much the capper of the regular season for college football. And then on top of that, we have to deal with all the bowls leading up to New Year's Eve. I figured I'd get that out of the way and that was to me of the utmost importance to start us off. So now, the NFL awaits and not a riveting or compelling Sunday of football. Yes, you did have a couple of games, which we'll get into, but overall, you had a lot of bad games, which is no shock, and that's pretty much been the theme all year when it comes to what's happening with the Shield. But of course, let's get right to it. My winners and losers of a week 13. Winner number one is going to go to the Los Angeles Chargers because that win in Cincinnati yesterday was enormous on so many levels. One They get off to the fast start to where it was 24-0. Not necessarily before you could blink, but they pretty much blitzed the Cincinnati defense right from the start. But then Cincinnati slowly but surely starts to come back. I know Joe Burrow on one of his throws hurts his pinky finger, which looked like it was killing him throughout the game. But kudos to him showing a lot of heart to get through that game. And even to the point where he brought his team back at 24-22, where they went for two there, which I thought was a little bit premature. I get that now you have all this momentum, you were down 24 nothing. you spotted them those first 24 points of the game, and then now you've come all the way back to the point where you want to get that two-point conversion to be tied, flat-footed, to see where you go from there, but they get stuffed on the two-point conversion, which I'm not going to say that that was a turning point by any stretch, it wasn't, but we all know that the Bengals, the key play of the game, when you get past the midway point, of the third quarter, and there they are trying to move the ball past midfield, and what happens? Joe Mixon fumbles the ball, it gets picked up, and returned all the way back to the other end for a touchdown, and it was pretty much no look back from there as the Chargers win a huge game, again on two fronts, one that they squandered the lead, that even though they didn't come across with the tying two-point conversion, but they didn't let up, it looked like that was going to be a typical Charger loss to be ahead of that much, and even though there was plenty of game to go, but the fumble recovery there by Tavon Campbell, 61 yards, which pretty much put the Chargers in good position to win the game, and as they did, 41-22.
there early in the fourth quarter. And the Chargers not only don't have to worry about the Bengals from a tiebreaker standpoint because they have that head-to-head, which is huge. And the Chargers, we know from one week to the next, they could go out next week and put up a stinker and then they're back where they started the week before when they lost to Denver at the Mile High City. But kudos to Brandon Staley and Justin Herbert who had a big game in the air, over 300 yards. It seems like it's commonplace for them. And the Chargers with a huge victory in Cincinnati where it had a lot of playoff implications. And my winner number two, and no surprise here, give it up to the Detroit Lions. They get their first win of the year. And in dramatic fashion, I know that the Vikings, you could shake your head and pull all your hair out of your head if you're my guy, Headstyle in Minnesota, and of course kept the Viking fan because on that last play of the game, fourth and goal at whatever it was, the nine-yard line or so, and for the defense, maybe it wasn't even, it was maybe like fourth and seven because I believe they had to get a first down or they could have had an opportunity to get a first down there. And then what happens? Ball in the end zone, Amon Ross St. Brown, who had a big game, 10 for 86, but had that touchdown there at the end where the defensive backs were playing very soft. And the Lions, who have come close, it seems, week after week, yes, they've had their blowouts in between, but whether it was the game against Baltimore, the, of course, the game against Pittsburgh when they had a chance to win in overtime, and they ended up tying that game. Even in Cleveland, they was, there was a one-score game at the end. And here it is. They finally get their first victory. So congratulations to Dan Campbell and company as the Lions get off the snide and win at home against the Vikings. As far as my losers of the week, loser number one goes to the San Francisco 49ers. And it's ironic because a week before, there were winners beating the aforementioned Vikings to where they had the tiebreaker advantage for one of the lower spots in the NFC. And what do they do? They go up to Seattle. And all right, you could say if they lose to Seattle, that's fine. But they had a 23-14 lead and they were about to kick the extra point to where Robbie Gould pushed it wide right, or actually hit off the upright. And although the nine-point lead, third quarter, you're thinking, all right, San Francisco should be in decent shape. You know they're going to run the ball. They're going to pound the rock. Seattle, they haven't been able to get out of their own way over the last month and change. But here comes Russell Wilson, as if it was three, four, five years ago. And he pulls his team out of the fire to the tune of... 16 unanswered points. They were up 30-23, to 23, but then the Niners had a chance there, knocking on the goal line, fourth and goal. They had an opportunity there with Jimmy Garoppolo, and what happens? The ball gets batted down. 22 seconds left, game over, and the Niners were just a brutal loss and a, not going to say a death knell, but just damaging hopes to their playoff future, if possible. Obviously, there's still a ton of games to be played here. Because at 6-6, six and six, where they stand at now, they still have five more games. You would think you're getting to the Final Four. Absolutely not. And as we've seen, from one week to the next, just like the Chargers and some of these other teams, who knows? The Niners, now they're going to be trending south after their win last week when it looks like they're going to trend north. And then my second loser of the week goes to the Denver Broncos. And I hate to pick on them because NBC... And with the flex schedule, I get it. They didn't want to put San Francisco-Seattle. They wanted to have a better matchup there because that was the original Sunday night game. But for the Bronco offense and what they did in that game yesterday, if I would have asked you yesterday that the Kansas City Chiefs were held to 22 points, and mind you, this isn't a Chief team that we've seen in years past because it's not as if they've been putting up 30 in their sleep like they have been over the last few years. But 
for the Broncos to not even muster a significant offensive drive throughout the course of this game, and it was pretty much an eyesore to watch, knowing that the Raiders lost earlier in the day. All right, the Chargers won, no problem, but you beat them the week before, so you know you want to keep pace with them in the AFC West, and a win here would have been enormous and would have done wonders for the Broncos, but the NFL got what they deserved by moving this game, and I get it. It's a lot better than San Francisco-Seattle, but man, that was three hours that you won't have back, and Lord knows I didn't watch every snap of this game, but Denver, even though they're still in the picture here for the AFC playoff, and that's going to be the theme once we get past this loser segment because, boy, I don't want to see Denver nowhere near the playoff scenario, and that's no offense to Vic Fangio, the coach of the team, or even the players, but I'm sure I speak for a lot to know that the Denver Broncos, nobody wants to see them in an AFC wildcard round. So that's what we have. And when we go through the week, I'm going to start with the AFC. Because the NFC, yes, we can understand. It's very top-heavy. We know with Arizona beating Chicago yesterday, having Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins back in the mix for the first time in about a month or even a little bit over a month. They go to Chicago in the rain and in the muck and win 33-22. Granted that Andy Dalton was handing out early Christmas gifts by throwing four interceptions. But Arizona, the top spot there out in the NFC. Green Bay, who had a bye this week. You didn't have to worry about them, but they're 9-3. and three. They're sitting pretty there with the two seed. We could also look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with what they did against Atlanta. I know that Tom Brady, four touchdowns, another whole hum game for him. Yeah, he did throw a pick six, which was un-Brady-like on that screen pass there where the defensive lineman Marlon Davidson just crawled home. He didn't even have to walk home and made it a game at that time at 20-17 to and that was right before the half. So without them playing it safe and deep in their own territory, for Brady to do that, that was more out of his rookie year or a what a rookie quarterback would do than a guy who's played in the league for 22 years. But when it was all said and done, no harm, no foul, as Tampa Bay goes on the win, and they currently have the three seed. And then you have the Cowboys there, who had another eyesore of a game there for the whole world to see on Thursday night against the New Orleans Saints. And I know Taysom Hill, maybe a lot of people thought, all right, we don't have to worry about Trevor Simeon. Taysom Hill, who hasn't proved much, if anything, as a quarterback here in the National Football League, But we know that we've seen him from time to time. He is able to throw the football. We know he could also run with the ball. He's a little bit dynamic in that regard. But he was also off on the game despite some of the numbers that he put up as far as a couple of touchdowns and even for throwing 264 yards. But he did throw four picks. Was, again, just an abomination overall. And Dallas cruised to a 27-17 victory. So it's not more so about the NFC. I wanted to get those games out of the way. Because a lot of it is about the AFC and how 12 of the 16 teams in the conference are still alive in the playoff hunt. And granted that seven teams are going to make it, but there is a logjam when we look at 1 through 12, and we'll go through it for sure. And you have a game tonight, which let me talk about that real quick, between New England going to Buffalo. And I said this last week, and I'll say it now, To me, this is a game more for Buffalo than it is New England because not only is it the game in their home park at Orchard Park for the Bills, but for everything that's been said about this team and granted that they've stubbed their toe here and there along the way, you know, losing in Jacksonville and having some bad losses, not playing well against Miami, although Miami's played a lot better here over the last five weeks. 
But Buffalo hasn't really been in sync if you take away the game there on Thanksgiving evening against New Orleans. But for the Bills, they need to make a statement tonight. They need to come out and show them who's boss in that AFC East. And granted, they really don't have the track record over the course of the last 20-some-odd years, as long as Bill Belichick has been a coach of the New England Patriots, we know that this has been his division to own for the last two decades. But again, for all the prognostication in the beginning of the year, them pretty much thinking that they were going to cruise to an AFC East title to maybe even have a one seed, to go to a Super Bowl and all that, well, you can forget about that right now. It's all about them not only winning this game tonight, but showing who's boss. Now, if they win a 21-17 type game and they just skate by, you don't throw these wins back. But if you're a Buffalo Bill fan, you want to see 31-13 and show the rookie quarterback there in Mac Jones what the NFL is all about if you're the Buffalo Bills. And to me, that's what that game is about. Because if Mac Jones and the Patriots put up a stinker, they've won six in a row, they can afford to lose this game. So this is not on New England. If New England comes out victorious here, Not to say I haven't taken them seriously, but I know I need to see more. Now, even if they skate by with a victory, I still won't be sold. But I'll have to take them a bit more seriously just based on what they've done here over the last few weeks. Because you can beat up on the Jets, you can beat up on Houston, you can beat up on all these teams. And I understand, yeah, they beat the Chargers and they beat the Browns and, you know, they've had some good wins here. But with the Patriots, I still need to see more, as I've said in podcasts past. But I need to see Buffalo just lay the wood on New England if I'm going to take them seriously in order for them to put a stranglehold on this division. So let me start with that as far as that game being played tonight. Indianapolis, they shut out the Houston Texans. No big whip there. They put themselves in a position where they're now 7-6. and six. And obviously in the mix there for the AFC, we've talked about LA and Cincinnati, how that was a big game for the Chargers, but the Bengals are still in pretty good position knowing that they're a game behind the Ravens and they already have a leg up on them with their win in Baltimore earlier this year. So, you know, Cincinnati's going to be a part of this mix from here on out, you would think. After the big win in Dallas on Thanksgiving Day, just a brutal ending to the Vegas game yesterday to where the kicker for the Washington football team made a long field goal there with seconds to go and then David Carr tried to play hero ball with the two long bombs, which one was almost completed, And it reminded me of the Super Bowl, Patriots-Giants, the first one, to where Brady threw that long pass to Randy Moss as he was deep in the seam, to where it was off of his fingertips, if you recall. And that's what that reminded me of, as they were taking that one last gasp to see if they could put themselves in position to kick a game-winning field goal. That wasn't to be, so Vegas loses a tough game at home to a Washington football team, which I might add, at 6-6, and and have not played the Cowboys yet, you have to put them in on the fringe to win a division. That's not to say they're going to beat the Cowboys. That's not to say they're going to win a division by any means, but you can't count them out yet because they have not played the Cowboys so far this season and we're already 13 weeks in. So you know those matchups are on the horizon and we cannot count the Washington football team out. The Titans had a bye this week, so we don't have to worry about them as they are still in the top spot there or right around the top. Now remember, when we look at the standings as of this moment, the Patriots are 8-4, and four and they haven't had their bye yet. So think about that. They still have their bye to come, which is going to come at a good time. They actually may be next week, 
And we'll take a look at that as we look at the Week 14 schedule. But I tell you, it's like the NFL does the Patriots all the favors because now, imagine them winning a game tonight and then they go into their bye at 9-4. Oh, jeez. That's if they have their bye next week because I believe the byes conclude the week after next. But I'll take a look at that as we'll go through it in a minute. So Tennessee had a bye. You don't have to worry about them. We talked about Kansas City and Denver. Yes, Kansas City, they've rightened the ship. They've now won five in a row. Not impressive, to say the least. And Denver, we know they have a good defense. But the Chiefs, right now, playing a lot better than they did the first part of the season. So we're going to have to take notice with Patrick Mahomes and company here as we head to the home stretch of the season. Now, let me get to it because a lot of the other dud games, am I really going to get into the Eagles and Jets? Well, I'll I'll spare that for the end because the Eagles are part of the NFC playoff mix. Let's get to Ravens-Steelers. Because that was one game that, if you go to any of my social media accounts, Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, J Reels, one, just a number, or even on Facebook, I posted a short video clip of Linda Blair, who played Reagan McNeil in the classic horror film, The Exorcist. Because every time I watch a Raven Steeler game, that's how I get. So... If you haven't watched or if you haven't seen, go check it out and you'll see for myself and you'll get a good chuckle. If not, maybe even a scare because of it. But man, that game yesterday had me feeling all types of ways. It was a typical Raven Steeler fight to the finish, which was led by the bad Lamar Jackson pick to start the game on their opening drive. And that was just a terrible pass. He shouldn't have thrown it. I get it. He didn't want to get sacked. And he got sacked seven times throughout the course of the game. A lot of the pressure... When you watch Tony Romo, I'm going to get to him in a little bit. When you watch Romo talk about how this is the Dolphin defense of a few weeks ago when they beat them on the Thursday night, they pretty much deployed the same type of blitz off the edge to get Jackson a little bit uncomfortable in that pocket. And as you saw, Jackson did not have a good game. Although he had a very good final drive set up by Chris Boswell. Ugh, I'll get to that also. But whether it was the opening drive where they were stopped, The Steelers, who in the first three quarters were only able to muster 140 yards of offense, they were just god-awful in clogged toilet mode for pretty much most of the game until they were able to take a page out of past Raven Steelers' performances of the past to where they were able to get 170 yards in the fourth quarter alone to where they were able to get the lead. But before that, The drive where the Ravens went 99 yards after that Presley Harvin punt went out of bounds at the one-inch line, pretty much. But even at that point, I knew and I felt, watch the Ravens go down the field because I saw the same movie two weeks ago to where the Steelers were stopped on a fourth and goal at the two-yard line and then the Chargers went 98 yards down the field to get the score to make it 14-3, if you remember. So, of course, a 10-minute drive ensued 99 yards, Devontae Freeman, who looked like Devontae Freeman of the Falcons via 2017, and they punch it into the end zone 7-0. The next drive, what were the refs thinking when Deontay Johnson got literally beheaded on the sideline there to where there was no flag? I was incensed. And then after that, the Steelers had an opportunity there at the end of the Half where Deontay Johnson dropped that touchdown to where Tony Romo came out and said, oh, that was a perfect pass. He needs to catch that. No, Tony Romo. That would have been Willie Mays a la 1954 World Series over the shoulder. And he had to angle himself to where he had to stretch out just a little bit. Now, should he have caught the ball? 100%. But it was not a perfect right between the numbers in the breadbasket type of catch 
to where Deontay Johnson would have just been in the end zone doing his little dance at the very end. No Tony Romo, so he was off on that. And then earlier in the quarter, when the Ravens had that long drive, he even asked Jim Nance, wait a minute, is that the same drive? You're getting paid $17 million a year. How do you not follow what's going on in the game? Yes, the drive took 10 minutes. Yes, it was a long drive. Also added by the 15-yard unsportsmanlike penalty by T.J. Watt. And for Romo to come out and say, wait a minute, is this the same drive? Oh, what game are you watching? So that was just awful on his part. Then you had the overturn on Ray-Ray McLeod. That catch to start off the third quarter where the Steelers were trying to make a drive and they went into Raven territory. How is that conclusive? I-, I couldn't believe that they overturned that. Now, granted, it looked like when he had possession of the ball, the ball looked like it was going to hit the ground, but there was not a bobble there. And I'm sorry, if the wide receiver is turning over and he's on his back and the ball, which there was a little bit of movement, but the ball is on his chest. It's not like the ball was falling off to the ground or falling to the side or where you could really doubt. No, the ball is on his chest. He has the ball possessed. How is that not a catch? God awful. But then, like I said, the Steelers in the fourth quarter, somehow, someway, were able to muster up some drives. You had the touchdown there. Wide open, which I couldn't believe when you saw the catch there made by Deontay Johnson to where he skipped into the end zone. But then as they line up for the extra point, Chris Boswell hits the ball to West Virginia. I I couldn't believe that. At first, I thought the ball may have hit the laces. That's why it just sailed the way it did. But for Boswell to just butcher that extra point, I couldn't believe it. And with the Steelers unable to really move the ball all day, you thought to yourself, this is where they're going to lose the game. Because even if the Ravens scored a field goal, which they did, now they got to come back and score a touchdown to win. As it was... They ended up getting a field goal themselves to make it 13-12. Then the Steelers were able to get that touchdown. They got the big penalty called on the hold, the pass interference to Deontay Johnson, where there was an interception on the play, and you thought, oh, geez. But thankfully, the flag went the Steelers' way, and it was obvious. And then they were able to get it into the end zone, Deontay Johnson. And I know that there was a minute 48 to go, and people were saying, oh, look how much time left on the clock. There was a part of me that thought that the... Ravens were just going to let the Steelers score there just so they could get the ball back and not even burn timeouts because remember, it was at the two-minute warning. They had to burn a couple of timeouts as it was and I thought that maybe they would just let them go in there just so they could save their timeouts. Maybe with the Steelers having to have to go for two points at 18-13 at that point so they could make it a touchdown and extra point possession lead. They didn't do that. They were able to get the touchdown. Deontay Johnson... Thankfully, they got the two-point conversion. And then, Chris Boswell, what the hell were you doing on the kickoff there? Now, I understand it rolled out of bounds, but kick that sucker to the back of the end zone. I know it's the open end of the stadium. I'm sure it wasn't a fri- it wasn't a frigid day there. It was not cold. I'm sure there was some wind there. But for Boswell to kick that short and then for it to flutter out of bounds, oh. That set them up at the 40, which Lamar Jackson, and even at one point, they had him third and 14. He was scrambling around all afternoon. The zone defense went soft there as they had that big completion to Hollywood Brown at the middle of the field, which put the ball in the Steeler territory. And then as they march down the field, they get the score there at 20 to 19, where Lamar Jackson finds Sammy Watkins in the end zone. And then even, God bless my father-in-law, he made this proclamation right before the start of that drive where he said he wouldn't be surprised if 
John Harbaugh goes for two. And he did. And the reason why, as we found out in the post-game press conference, was that his cornerbacks were down and out. Marlon Humphrey left with a bad shoulder, which could be season-ending and which would be a big blow for the Ravens there defensively. And I believe Jimmy Smith, I don't know if he left with an injury, but the secondary was depleted for the Ravens and he didn't want to push the game into overtime to where they knew that if the Steelers had the coin toss, Roethlisberger would have picked that defense apart, maybe even set themselves not only for field goal position, but maybe even to punch it into the end zone to just end the game outright. And that's why they went for two. But thankfully, the pressure there by T.J. Watt off the edge had made the throw by Lamar Jackson just sail a little bit off of the hands of Mark Andrews. And if you're a defensive coordinator, that's the one guy in the field you got to watch overall. I can't believe that you could have Hollywood Brown, you could have Rashad Bateman, you could have Sammy Watkins, you could have Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, Terrell Owens, I don't care who's on the field. He always goes to Mark Andrews. And sure enough, on that play call, if it wasn't for T.J. Watt, he probably would have walked into the end zone and that would have been it for the Steelers. Not only just for that game, but for whatever playoff chances that they have. And as much as I threw dirt on the Steelers last week, I'm not going to break out the pom-poms and think all is fine and dandy. And it's weird because I said that tie was going to ruin them at the end of the year with the Detroit Lions. That could actually help them. Because they don't have tiebreakers against the Raiders, and even though the Raiders lost and they're 6-6. Six and six, But they don't have tiebreakers against the Bengals. They don't have a tiebreaker against the Chargers. They have the Chiefs down the road. And if they somehow, some way, end up with the same amount of losses, or I should say, if they end up with the same amount of wins, I got that in reverse. So, case in point, if the Steelers end up 9-7-1 and one, and the Chargers or Bengals end up 9-8, and eight, the Steelers will make it to the postseason because of that tie. Anything else, they would have been screwed. Because whether 9-8, and 10-7, because of those losses to those teams, they would have no shot of making it to the postseason. But now, they actually have a chance. But with that remaining schedule to where they got to go to Minnesota on Thursday night, and there is no shot in hell they're going to win that game. This team is beat up. Anytime it's Ravens-Steelers, we know it's a street fight. And now they have a three-day turnaround to where they got to go to Minnesota after that loss to the Lions, and then see if they can beat them. No chance. I say it right now, there is zero chance Pittsburgh's winning that game at U.S. Bank Field on Thursday night. And then after that, they have Tennessee coming into their building. They have to go to Kansas City, then host Cleveland on a Monday night, and then go to Baltimore. They are not making the playoffs. I threw dirt on them last week. The dirt is still on there. They're going to have to go on a winning streak in order for me to believe that they're going to make it to the postseason. And I'm sorry. I say it as it is, and I got to call it like I see it. I'm not breaking out the pom-poms a la Bill Simmons. Patriots, best team in the conference. Whoa, here we go. Back to the Super Bowl. No, 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 no. I'm a realist. And with the way that offense performs and the defense is up and down, TJ Watt, the guy, if he doesn't win defense play of the year, I don't know. And I know he missed a couple of games, but man, that guy is just, his motor is unlike any that you've ever seen. The guy is relentless. But that's what we have. And as far as the other games, am I going to get into Jacksonville and the Rams? Really? 37-7 Rams? Or even Philadelphia, which I know that they're in the playoff mix in the NFC with Gardner Minshew filling in for 
the injured Jalen Hurts, and he goes in there and performs very well. And I know Miami's still a part of the mix there by beating the Giants yesterday. I get it. But next week, once we get to the final four games for everybody in the NFL, I'll get into schedules. We'll start getting into tiebreaker modes, especially as we get inch closer to the end of the season. Right now, it's still too early. Maybe even after we get past week 15, that's when I really start to own in on these schedules. Because you're going to have a lot of division play here over the final few weeks. And if that's one thing that the NFL did right was bunch up these division games toward the end of the year. Because just in the AFC North alone, you're going to have a lot of teams face one another. So as we look at the week 14 docket, and this is the final week for the buys. Because the week after, you have your Saturday games which come into play. Because with the college football season... Regular season concluding next week at the Army-Navy game. And granted, that game is usually at 2 p.m. But now the window opens up for the NFL to play on Saturdays the week after. So Indianapolis, Miami, New England, and Philadelphia will conclude all the buys for 2021. And as we look at the schedule, as I mentioned, Pittsburgh-Minnesota is your Thursday night game, which that could be a very ugly game. And who knows? I could see maybe... I'm not going to say Minnesota's going to cruise the victory, but I could see this being a game where Minnesota is going to want to wipe the stench off of the loss against Detroit and take it out on Pittsburgh, knowing that they just came out of a, like I said, a barroom brawl against Baltimore yesterday. But your games this week, and you got a few that are on the docket finally. Now you had a game flexed to 425 where you have San Francisco at Cincinnati. And let's see if San Francisco can rebound after their loss yesterday. And same for the Bengals, as they have a lot of home games here down the stretch. And they also need to bounce back in the worst way. But your highlight games, I hate the Sunday night game. I know it's the oldest rivalry in the NFL, but I don't need to see Chicago and Green Bay. I don't. Please, spare us from that. Because nobody cares about the Bears. And we understand the market of Chicago and the allure of Green Bay and the frozen tundra at Lambeau Field. I could kill us. But your other big games are as follows. Baltimore at Cleveland, huge game. And with Cleveland coming off a bye, let's see, two weeks to prepare. Lamar Jackson and company, and they're coming off of a beating in their own right. Just Lamar Jackson being sacked for seven times and not having a big game. And maybe a little bit of payback from the Sunday night game two weeks ago. Or really last week when you think about it. Vegas and Kansas City. This is Vegas's last stand right here. They lose this game. You would pretty much think that they're going to be out so now they got to go to Kansas City, who has won five in a row. Right, not a sexy game, not a game that it's a must-watch, but one that has to be on your radar when it comes to the AFC playoff picture. Dallas at Washington. As I said, this is the first of two matchups here over the final few weeks. I think they play two times in the next three weeks. So this is one we're going to have to watch. So let's see if the football team of Washington will step up here in class to know that they can control their own destiny by winning here and then winning against Dallas in Dallas later on. That's a game that we have to keep an eye on. Buffalo at Tampa is your 425 highlight game for the country to see. Now we talked about the game tonight. Buffalo, New England. Who knows? However Buffalo comes out of this game, will there be a little bit of a letdown or will it be desperation mode for the Bills as they go down to Tampa to face an old nemesis in Tom Brady? Your Monday night game, a good one. Rams at Arizona. I understand that's set for Monday night, so that's not part of the Sunday slate. But still, you have some good games here that at least you could wrap your arms around and hope 
that we could have some steam going into the final four weeks of an NFL season and get set for January and what that's going to be all about for the postseason. Other games, Jacksonville, Tennessee, Saints are playing the Jets, Atlanta, Carolina, Seattle at Houston, Detroit at Denver. Yeah, these games you're not going to really care about. And that pretty much wraps up your week 14 in the NFL. All right, so let's turn our attention to Major League Baseball because as we know by now, five days later, that the clock struck midnight on December 1st to no agreement, shocker. And for a new CBA, how that's going to develop, how that's going to come about is beyond me. Obviously, they had some discussions in the hours leading up to the expiration of this collective bargaining agreement. Both sides couldn't come to any sort of plan, I would think. And obviously, there was no agreement to be made. So now it begs the question, what's going to happen from here on out? Now, as I've said to you in the past, I think that this is going to be a long, cold, hard winter. There is absolutely no rush to get a deal done. And granted, you still have some top free agents out there that have not signed on the dotted line. And it's bizarre because part of the reason why we're having this disagreement or a lack of a renewal when it comes to the CBA is because the owners... For the last couple of years, they've been crying wolf about how much money is being spent on these players. But then the flip side of that is look at all the money that was doled out over the last 10 to 14 days, whether you're in Texas for the Rangers, right here in my backyard, my beloved New York Mets, and even north of the border in Toronto, when they have signed deals for not only Jose Barrios to keep their own pitcher that they acquired from the Minnesota Twins, but also Kevin Gossman, in which they gave $5 million less than what Robbie Ray got in Seattle for his mega contract. So it almost begs the question, owners, what's the deal here? Which one is it? You do not want to hand out the big bucks to these players, but at the same time, you're talking about how we're crying broke. But as we all know, when it comes to What's going on in baseball? It's the middleman that's getting shut out here. And that's the problem. Because we know the star or the superstar player, they're going to get their money. And they're going to get their security. And yes, there may be some guys that have had big years, a la Kevin Gossman. Because when you look at the back of his baseball card, please, that doesn't scream five years, $115 million. He, in a walk year for a San Francisco Giant team that won 107 games, talk about right place at the right time, Well, he got his money based on that. But if he had an average year and did not really perform to the record that he believed, I believe it was what, 14 and 5 this year or 14 and 4? If he was just 8 and 10 with a 4 ERA, he wouldn't have got anywhere near this type of money and he would have been probably shut out. Somebody would have signed him because somebody does need pitching. But at the same time, he wouldn't have gotten 5 at 115 or 5 at 110 because Robbie Ray got 5 for 115. He wouldn't have got that kind of money if he didn't have the year that he had. So it's the smaller guy on the team, whether it's the fourth outfielder, the backup infielder, the third reliever that's going to come out of the bullpen, whether it be in mop-up or a guy that you're not going to really trust. Those are the contracts that the owners are worried about because they don't want to dish out three four or five-year deals 
in upwards of $60 million if they could help it. They're going to spend it on the star outfielder, infielder, starting pitcher, and closer, or maybe even the setup man, the eighth inning guy. That's what the owners will do as far as constructing their team and making sure that they have those positions filled in and paid well. It's everybody else that they don't want to deal with. And that's going to be the problem where the players are going to say, well, wait a minute. These guys are just as vital and will contribute just as much as the star player. Yes, maybe not from the box office slash TV rating standpoint, but from overall team concept, you're going to need to have that grinder infielder or the guy that's going to come in in the eighth inning to replace a guy in the outfield who's not either fleet of foot or doesn't have the glove that's going to secure a game when you get to the later innings. And that's what baseball is going to have to deal with. And as I said before, whether it be sometime after the Super Bowl or in mid-March when the tournament begins for the NCAA March Madness, we may not have a season that's going to start on time if anything doesn't happen between that window of February 14th to about March 15th. Because if they push it any time after that, you're going to push back the season. You may even have to slice off a week or two, depending on how deep this goes. Because if you remember, back in 94, when the player strike took place, they didn't start the 1995 season until about late April, to where you had an 144-game season. And although you had pretty much close to a full season as you could possibly have at that time, but do you really think baseball wants to go ahead and do that, considering that they're losing fans by the second And maybe not the older guy like myself, but the young fan that just rallies around players because that's what the focus is in, I would think, mostly for the young boy, the teenager, or the young adult that they're going to follow the Mike Trouts, the Bryce Harpers, the Manny Machados, guys like that. And similar to the NBA, where they'll follow, follow the Giannis's, the... ADs, the LeBrons of the world, where they don't really have a team, and they're not going to really care if the season starts on time, where they look at it, it's like, oh, it's baseball, who cares? I'm not going to watch anyway. You may have that issue if it's not going to start on time, considering that's the window I'm looking at from mid-February to mid-March for the players and owners to come to some sort of agreement. And again, where does that leave guys like Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Freddie Freeman, Chris Bryant, Clayton Kershaw, you name it. Because there is no rush for both sides to come together and say, let's agree on this, let's agree on that. All right, we'll give you here, we'll shave off a little there. All right, you want that, but let's meet somewhere in the middle. Agreed? Boom. You know it's not going to be that simple. And if this thing does happen to bleed into March, early March at that, into the first, second week, and dare I even say the Ides of March. Let's say they come to an agreement on St. Paddy's Day, and I believe the season's supposed to start, I I can't even tell you off the top of my head, is it April 6th this year? Do they move it up? Is it April 2nd? Who knows? But let's just say for argument's sake, it is April 2nd. So now you have to have two and a half weeks of a spring training on top of having to sign these aforementioned superstars of the game to where they have to get acclimated, they have to move their families, they have to 
pretty much get their uniforms fitted while they're in the cage taking swings because they got to prepare for a season. So baseball, I know right now they could sleep on it. They could rest. They could put their feet up. They could say, ah, we could come back to the table come the new year. Ah, let's do it in the middle of January. Ah, you know what? Let's wait till after the Super Bowl because all the press and pub is going to go toward the NFL. And then when you get to February 15th, they're going to start to try to have a meeting of the minds and we all know it's probably going to go more backwards than it is forwards. So let us wait and see. But let me go through these signings real quick. Last week, as I pretty much signed off and hit stop on my record button, Corey Seager signs with the Texas Rangers for 10 years and $325 million. Man. Now listen, Corey Seager is a very good player. We know that he's a former NLCS and World Series MVP. And I get it. A young player, they're going to get that type of money. I don't know, was he 28 years old? So of course, if you're going to give him 10 years, he's going to play to 38, a la similar to Lindor's contract last year with the Mets. But between him and Marcus Simeon, who they signed for seven for 175, only a half a billion dollars is going to the middle of their infield. So that asks the question, if you're a Texas Ranger fan, where's the pitching? Where are we going to spend the money on some top flight pitching that we can't win every game 8-7 or 7-6? We're going to need to win a couple of 2-1, 3-2 games along the way. Javi Baez signs 6 for 140 with Detroit. So you know the Mets were going, even with that whole Eduardo Escobar, him pretty much going to take over for Javi Baez to play second base. I wonder how that went in the Lindor household, knowing that Baez was there for 60-some-odd games, and he's going to be playing in the Motor City. The Dodgers were able to re-sign Chris Taylor for for 60, knowing that they had Trey Turner at short, where Seager goes to Texas, and obviously with Max Scherzer coming to the Mets, they were able to front some of that money over to Chris Taylor, who's a good player and got a very good contract, but definitely not that guy that's going to get $100 million in six or seven years. And then Marcus Stroman signs three for 71 and opt out after two with the Chicago Cubs. He's pumped up, ready to pitch for the Wrigley Faithful. Good for him. And you just knew that after Scherzer was signed on the dotted line that the likelihood of Stroman coming back to Queens was... Very slim to none. And as we see right now, it has been a big fat zero. So that's what we got with the baseball people. Just hold off. Don't hold your breath because there will not be an agreement anytime soon. And if there is, it'll be a shock of all time. But if baseball wants to be part of the fabric, if they want to be part of the American sports landscape, and they always will with a guy like myself, anybody that's 40 and up, you would think, fine, they may come back. or you, They may, who knows? They may say, good riddance, I'm sick of it. Goodbye, I'm tired of the analytics. Baseball is too damn slow. As much as I love it, I can't stand it. And now the players and owners don't want to agree. Forget it, I'm gone. You may get that too. But if they do happen to have any inkling, iota of sense, they would get the sucker done by March 1st. Quickly, let me go through the NBA, NHL, even some college basketball. I know I got a lot to do here and I want to just kind of wrap this up in a tidy, nice package before I get to my hero in zero of the week. So, NBA, real quick, the Suns were riding high. I know I talked last week that had a 16-game winning streak going into their first matchup with the 
Golden State Warriors, as we know, the Warriors have gotten off to a tremendous start. And with the game being in Phoenix, they're able to push their streak to 18 games after beating Golden State there on Tuesday night. They were at home against the Detroit Pistons there on Thursday before going up to the Bay Area to play the Warriors in a rematch. And the Warriors were able to best them pretty handily to stop their 18-game winning streak. And that was tough only because it was a back-to-back. It would have been better if the Suns had a game where they had a day to kind of rest in San Francisco and then go ahead and play them that evening. But with the flight up to San Francisco and then have to play the next night, 18 in a row, it took a little bit of luster off of the silverware. So the sun streak was snapped. But give them credit, they have been phenomenal here to start off their season. No hangover from an NBA final that there were up two games to love against the Bucks, And you just wonder whether or not the Suns will be a threat at the end of the day against the Warriors in a seven-game season. I mean, we're just past the quarter mark here, and with so much NBA season to go, it is way too soon to even think that. But you have to wonder whether or not the Suns will really give the Warriors all they can handle if they do face off down the road deep into an NBA playoff. Also, you had a game last week, which when I saw the final score, I almost fell out of my chair. And I get that they're an NBA team, and they haven't been terrible. Now, the Oklahoma City Thunder, again, this isn't the Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, even James Harden, if you go back that far as an NBA fan, and I get that was a decade ago. But with the Thunder and how they were just, not just embarrassed, they just got ran out of the gym. And it made you think, we get it. Sometimes these games get away. Sometimes the competition, they just run you out of the gym. And next thing you know, you're down by 40 or whatever it is. But to lose by 73 points, that is just inexplicable. And I could see it was a thing where they had so many people injured. Think about this. The Memphis Grizzlies didn't even have John Moran in the lineup. So it makes you think if John Moran is in the lineup, what, they would have won by 90? Uh, How is that possible? And again, it's not as if the OKC, this team, is the New Orleans Pelicans or the Detroit Pistons. Now, granted, they're 6-16, six and 16, and nobody's even going to think that they're going to be one of the qualifiers to play in the 7-10 through 10 round. And I understand prior to this game, they had lost a ton in a row. And when you think about it, before they've lost this eight-game losing streak that they're in the midst of, they were 6-8, and eight, so it's not as if they were at the bottom, like the Houston Rockets were, and the Rockets have turned their season around to the point where they were 1-16 and and they've won six in a row. But that was just an absolute inexcusable, shameful, I can't even say embarrassing. Is there a worse word than that? Ah, jeez. The final score of that game, I can't even fathom. 152-79? to And the previous... Deficit was 68, I believe it was the Bucks in 91 over the Miami Heat. Now you can understand that, the Heat were in existence three years at that time. When expansion teams were expansion teams, when they were really awful when they came into existence. And I get it, OKC, they're in ultimate rebuild mode with all the draft picks that they've stocked over the years, whatever. But geez, 79, and it's the Grizzlies. I can see if the Lakers went in there or the Bucks or a top team... It was the Grizzlies without their best player. That's why it's even more mind-blowing than to... You can't even fathom it. 
So you've had that. I know you had a couple of injuries you got to deal with if you're in Miami or even in Portland for that matter where Damian Lillard is going to be out a few more days with this ab injury that he has. Bam out of bio. The center for the Miami Heat is going to be gone four to six weeks with a torn ligament in his right thumb. And the Heat, who they started off slow and then they played a little bit better and then they've been kind of up and down here as they're in the middle of the pack in the East. But right now, everything is pretty much status quo. I know the Knicks fans starting to mumble and grumble here a little bit. Because remember that 5-1 and one star and everybody is gallivanting throughout New York with blue and orange colors and go New York, go New York, go and Knicks tape and we here and all this other nonsense. Well, how have the Knicks done since that 5-1 and one start? They have gone 6-11 and 11 since then. That you even heard some boo birds coming from the rafters of the garden after that performance there on Saturday against the Denver Nuggets. So for all of the honeymoon phase at the start of this year and everybody's going gaga for the Knicks, oh, we're going to be the top team in town, we back, blah, blah, blah. Well, the last three and a half weeks or so, the team has fallen off a cliff. Just had to throw that in there, just a little jab to the Knicks fan. But, but other than that, I know you had the issue with LeBron last week going into protocol and then he called the whole ordeal just confusing and he was angered by it because he was tested negative then he got a positive test to where he had to fly home from Sacramento he couldn't play in the game and then he felt that with the positive test he wanted to stand pat to maybe come back with the team but then he had to fly on his own it was just a big mess but listen I'm not going to get it all wrapped up in that COVID nonsense but for those who are wondering whether the Lakers who Still have not played well. They've been at 500. Still kind of going through the motions here at the start of this year. But NBA right now, pretty much you could put that on the back burner. Not much going on there. College basketball has actually gotten a little bit of buzz because you had another number one get knocked off early last week. And that was the Duke Blue Devils losing to Ohio State. And with them going cold in the second half, they were up by 15 points. And then couldn't score in the last four and a half minutes of the game to where the... Buckeyes were able to reel off a run to where they closed out the game, not with 18 straight, but knowing that Duke was in full control and then went ice cold toward the end of the game, Ohio State overtook Duke and were able to win. So we had Gonzaga, what was the number one the week before where Duke beat them. Now your number one team in the country is the Purdue Boilermakers for the first time in the school's history. So for them... To now be ranked number one. And I'm sure somewhere Gene Keedy, the legendary Boilermaker coach, is smiling greatly. But how long that's going to last remains to be seen. Because as we have seen last year, and I know due to COVID, so it was up and down. Can't get too wild and crazy about last year's college basketball season. But let's see how long Purdue holds up as a number one. As they're 8-0, undefeated, 1-0 in the Big Ten right now. So we'll keep an eye on that. And it was interesting too, because when we look at just Alabama on Saturday. As we talked about early on with Alabama beating Georgia, well, Alabama knocked off another top team in the country, but this time in college basketball as Gonzaga loses again for the second time, 91-82. So you know everybody was dancing abound in Tuscaloosa, not only first and foremost for the football team, and rightfully so, but even the basketball team upending the Bulldogs of Gonzaga. So it was a great day for Alabama all along there on Saturday. And then NHL, you had a couple of firings here 
The Canucks fire Travis Green. Remember him, the one-time Islander player? He gets replaced by Bruce Boudreaux, and you remember him from his days in Washington, even Anaheim. So the Canucks had to make a change there. And even the Flyers this morning said goodbye to Elaine Vigneault, the former Canuck and New York Ranger coach, to where they lost eight straight, including a 7-1 embarrassment to the Lightning yesterday. So they gave him his walking papers. So you had a couple of coaches walk the plank here in a matter of a week. And if you're a Devil fan, you're happy. But no surprise, as Jack Hughes, the number one pick of a few years ago, Get signed to an eight-year, $64 million deal. Had to throw that in the mix. The Islanders still can't win a game at home. They've certainly hit the skids, and I don't even know if they're going to be able to dig themselves out of this hole. I mean, this is just bordering on inescapable. They have now lost 11 games in a row. Now, they did have a shootout loss in Detroit on Saturday, but they cannot get out of their own way. And I don't know if you could chalk it up to their start. I did say last week because the team had an outbreak of COVID to where they had two games canceled or postponed the game last Sunday against the Rangers and then the Flyers on Tuesday. I thought maybe this would be a time for them to regroup. Not the case. They lose to San Jose at home on Thursday and they lose to Detroit on Saturday, as I mentioned, even though it was in a shootout, but then they lose to the Blackhawks yesterday at home. So... The Islanders right now are real, they're just reeling beyond belief right now. So who knows where they're going to be able to salvage this season. They're going to have to do that and act fast if they want to try to get out of this hole. But besides that, everything else is pretty much status quo. Nothing really to get into. I know the Rangers have played very well here. And it's funny, I teasingly picked them last year as a reverse jinx. Them getting the number one pick. Them with a young roster, new goaltender that they were going to rise and obviously didn't make the playoffs. Well, this year, they look like they're going to be a threat. They've won six in a row. They are playing very well and are near the top of the Metropolitan Division with the Capitals in first place. So that's one team we certainly, and I will certainly keep an eye on. All right, one last thing before I get to my hero in zero of the week. Tiger Woods had a press conference where the week before, he had posted a couple of images on his social media accounts, I believe on Instagram, discussing his progress from the near-fatal accident that he had in Southern California there in February where his left leg, or I believe his right leg, was mangled and was uh, borderline to be amputated. So Tiger had a press conference on Tuesday pretty much detailing the progress which has been minimal, but at the same time he has been coming along, he's gotten a ton of support from his brethren there on the circuit. Not only that, the messages that have come from all angles, whether it be athletes, entertainers, celebrities, even the general public like ourselves, heartwarming to say the least, that he's just been grateful, thankful, that all has been well pretty much since the accident, the treatment that he's gotten, and of course he's Tiger Woods, you know he's going to get A-plus treatment. He is taking it slow, he's thinking about the Open next year, who knows if he's going to come anytime sooner. He's thinking that he's not going to win or even come close to competing for another major. I don't know if that's a little bit of a reverse jinx. I don't know if that's some humility on his part, whether he's being 100% honest. And I think it's more of that than him coming out saying that he's not going to make it, where deep down inside, that's probably giving him some extra fuel. Because as you know, Tiger, even as he's getting into the later stages of his career, even with that victory in Augusta a couple of years back, 
We know he's not the same player with all the injuries and all the surgeries, especially with his back. We remember the knee injury going back to 2008 with the U.S. Open with Rocco Mediate, but with his body breaking down and then having to go through not only this extensive and laborious surgery, but also the rehab that would entail, I think Tiger has come to a point knowing that he's not going to be able to compete for a major, and if he does, it's going to be probably more on the field coming back to him than him raising his level to the field. He didn't discuss anything about the accident, which you would expect. Tiger isn't going to tip his hand on what that was about, whether he was under meds, whether he was depressed, whether he was whatever it is. So that was to be touched. But good for Tiger. He's on the mend. Let's see if he comes back in 2022 at any point. We know that the British Open is not until July of next year, which could be what he's trying to target if it's anytime sooner. I'm sure he's chomping at the bit to get to Augusta, but that looks like it's going to be just a gargantuan task for him to get to Augusta in early April. But I know Tiger, he'll keep us up to date as we move along, obviously into the new year, into the teeth of winter when a lot of those small tournaments are being played. And you would think maybe we'll hear from him at some point before Augusta or maybe at the Arnold Palmer, the, what is that, the Bay Invitational, which is... One tournament he always supports, not to say he's going to be on the course, but maybe he'll have some words prior to then on his recovery and his progress. So we'll certainly keep our eyes and ears open for that. All right, everybody, let's get to it. My hero and zero of the week to wrap us up here. My hero of the week is going to go to Medina Spirit. Medina Spirit was a horse that won the 2021 Kentucky Derby, but it was amidst a ton of controversy because... Later, it was found out that he tested positive for steroid due to a skin rash that the horse had. And then we find out early this morning that the horse collapsed after a workout and had died. Now, people could say, Jay Reels, come on, you're going to really give the hero to a horse? As you know, over the years, I report and discuss horse racing, but the sport And the treatment of its horses have been just an abomination. It has been brutal. It has been inexcusable. We know that this has been going on for years. They try to sweep it under the rug. But so many horses have been put to sleep because of the treatment. And obviously, this is a case where you had a Kentucky Derby winner just collapse and perish. And I am far from the morality police or the animal rights police in that regard. Now, I have my feelings and thoughts on that, which is a whole separate issue. But just knowing that this horse has gone through so much this year as it is, and then you would think that they would just let the horse live on considering what it's been through. But no, they had to put it in a workout, I believe in Santa Anita out in California, to where that was it, it expired. Medina Spirit, You had a tremendous spirit and fought the good fight. So may your soul rest in peace. You are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, and this is an easy one, people, has to go to Antonio Brown. He gets suspended three games because of a fake vaccination card that he got through his chef or chef was involved and called him out where he paid $500 for this card. And you would think Tampa, Bruce Arians, Even the Glazers would do something. They said last year that they were going to give him one shot. And if he screws that up, he's out. He's still part of the team. And it's not as if they need him. They got a ton of receivers and tight ends. 
So you would think they would cut bait and that's it. This isn't Antonio Brown of the Killer Bees of 2017 in Pittsburgh. Yes, is he still a productive player? Yes, is he a threat? Yes, is he a guy you have to pay attention to when he's on the field? Absolutely, but it's not as if they're bereft at that position where they can't they, they can't live without this guy. But Antonio Brown, this isn't some 23-year-old that is a sixth-round pick that is some knucklehead. You would think he would have gotten his life in order, got it together, got it straight. A.B., my G, you are my zero of the week. That'll do it, episode 227. My people, I appreciate you guys. I do not take your participation for granted, as well as the females too, for those out there that listen to me. And as I said at the very top, and I'll say now, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast so I can get some guests on here. Because even though I've been doing this for almost four years, and even though I've had a smattering of guests over the years, but I'm not a household name. And in order for me to be that household name, I would need your help. So if you could do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, hit me up. Question, comment, criticism, praise on any of my social media accounts, whether it be on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. And also, the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals ASAP. And lastly... If you want to support this endeavor, do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A, T as in Tom, R, E, O, N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to contribute, whatever you want to, out of your hard-earned dollar, put forth to the production of this podcast, to the website, to the equipment, everything that entails me coming here each and every week through your speakers or your earbuds, to wax poetic on everything that's happening in the world of sports because you know this is what I love to talk about. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, people. To share my thoughts, feelings, opinions, analysis with nothing but passion and fire. If you didn't hear that early on, then I don't know. I got to bring the pain even more and you know I'll do so. Whether it's on the gridiron, the diamond, the ice, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>